morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed. Thank you to those who will be teaching them today. Wonderful time of uh, singing and praying together so far. Looking forward to looking in your word today. Today we'll be in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, so if you've got a Bible, turn with me there. There's some enthusiastic kids today. That's great. Um, And let's get this out of the way right from the beginning. Yes, my face is different. No chilla, that's not nice. Chilla has been pestering me at GC to shave my face. And so has my wife. And this is what happens when you mock uh, a fellow brother in Christ for shaving his face. You mess up shaving your own. So that's what happened. Um, I'm like a unicorn. I have a baby's face and white hair. These two things don't go together. So, we ready now? All right. Um, Just for a second before we read um, our text for this week, let me give you a brief preview of of where we're headed. Um, Next week, uh, Tad will walk us through um, a long section of um, Habakkuk, what's often called as uh, the, the woes. So each paragraph in the next section begins with a pronouncement of judgment. So as usual, I leave the easy texts for Tad, uh, but he will be sharing next week. I leave um, Saturday morning to uh, fly to a small town in Nicaragua where I'll be spending a week um, teaching about 40 pastors who uh, pastor different villages spread throughout northern Nicaragua. Uh, we'll be talking about how to preach. So if you think of it, pray for us next week as we'll be there. Um, a, a, another church in Oklahoma sent um, a team that was introduced to you last week, and they started a, a seminary in Nicaragua, so I'll be there helping them for a week. So do pray for us. Um, I've been there a whole bunch of times, but it's been about a decade, so I'm looking forward to catching up with some old friends. And then the following Sunday, um, one of the professors at Phoenix Seminary, uh, a man named Dr. John Delhousse, will be here with us to talk through the first part of uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. So John is a good friend and uh, a faithful partner here in the valley. So I'm looking forward to you hearing from him uh, in two weeks, two weeks from today. And the following week, we'll be uh, ending the book, and I'll be back with you to share the very last few verses, my favorite part of the whole book. So that's kind of where we're headed, and um, looking forward to you hearing from some different people who will remain teaching for us um, in series. So we're in uh, the second chapter today of Habakkuk chapter 2. Let me read the first five verses for us. It says, uh, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. 
Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. As we've been encountering together, Habakkuk is a man who believes God. But at present, at this point in his life, this belief was an excruciating belief. We've seen a pattern so far in this book. It started with uh, what we might call complaint one. God, are you just? Don't you see the way in which your people are sinning while you do nothing? And then came what we might call response one, in which God says, yes, Habakkuk, I see. And I'm raising up Babylon. Babylon will judge Judah. And then came complaint two. God, are you good? Are you sovereign? I believe you are. But how could you raise up a wicked people to judge a people who are better than them? That's what we looked at last week. And today what we just read is what we might call the response number two. The response can be summarized quite simply in this way. God said that the ungodly will die by pride, but the righteous will live by faith. The ungodly will die by pride, but the righteous will live by faith. So that's what we'll talk about this morning The answer to Habakkuk's second and certainly more intensified complaint is given by way of a contrast in which God says, Babylon and all like them will die in their pride. But by way of contrast, godly, the righteous, the upright will live. Now notice the text goes out of its way to describe some details that seem unnecessary, perhaps, at first glance. Specifically, the details of how Habakkuk was to record this prophecy or this vision. It says in verse 2 that he's to write it, to make it plain, and then again to write it on tablets. What's up with that kind of detail? Well, friends, in in our Scriptures, there's never something that's just extra, that just is filler. So anytime there's details that seem unnecessary, it's often at those moments we ought to slow down and pay close attention because God's intending to communicate something. And that's certainly true in this case. Listen to this verse from Exodus and see if it helps fill in some detail. This is Exodus 24. The Lord said to Moses, come up on the mountain and wait there that I may give you tablets of stone." with the law and commandments which I have written for their instruction. Does that sound familiar? Yeah? Now, here's another place in which something similar is said in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Write on the stones all the words of the law very plainly. Similar words. What's happening in Habakkuk? Well, friends, with this tablets and write it and make it plain... There's an amazing picture of grace. What what God is saying in the second response to Habakkuk is the same thing He said to Abraham and to Moses and to Isaac and to Jacob. He says, I'm a God who keeps my promises. The righteous, the people who follow God, always live by their faith. So in a sense, what God's saying to Habakkuk is, What I've always been saying, it's the same thing I'm saying to you. I'm just going to repeat it afresh and anew. 
because you need it fresh in your own day. Write it on the tablets. Make it plain so all will see. Friends, God's renewing His covenant. He's saying to, to Habakkuk the same exact thing He said to Moses. This is how you live. You live by faith. Isn't that cool? Great image. God is saying to Habakkuk, the ungodly will die by their pride, but the righteous will live by their faith. I've promised to raise up a godly people and to redeem from some in every tribe, tongue, and nation a people for myself. I will do this. Trust me. Just like I've fulfilled this in the past. Habakkuk, you can trust. I will fulfill it in your day and in every future day. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us, is it not? In our darkest days, God is still writing His story. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of His church spreading to every nation. It's a story of our own transformation. And so this very old message is still fresh and new today. And that message is God is faithful to His promises. So trust Him. But what will that require of us? Well, verse 3 tells us. It says, if it seems slow, what? Wait. We can't hardly even say the word, can we? If it seems slow, wait. Wait for it. I want to slow way down and spend a good part of the sermon this morning talking about that one word, wait. Wait. Waiting is one of the most difficult things we modern people ever must do. Now part of that, of course, is that we run at breakneck speed. How many of you have waited at the microwave in the last seven days? Or been like almost blowing your top in the grocery line? Or you're on driving down the road, there's three lanes of traffic, and you just must be the car in front. But lo and behold, the person you honked at and perhaps made gestures at, you're at the stoplight and they're right behind you. You got no further than they did. We, we are constantly in a hurry, constantly rushing. So waiting is hard for us just by nature of the way in which we live. But is there more to it than that? Is there some other reason why waiting is hard? I think so. I think that waiting reminds us that we're not in control. When we're forced to wait, we feel small. When there are things beyond us that there's nothing we can do about that demand us to wait, we don't like that. Because it tells us there are things beyond us that life ultimately isn't up to us. Waiting means we're required to trust God. And that's hard. So God told Habakkuk to wait because he was working out his plan providentially. Judah would be judged for their sin. 
Babylon would be judged for their sin. But in the context of waiting on both, Habakkuk would have to grow up. He would have to mature. His muscles of faith would have to be exercised by the resistance of time. None of us like that. God was insistent that Habakkuk would write this down so that it could be passed on to others. Why? Well, it's because Habakkuk never saw it fulfilled. Habakkuk probably lived to see Babylon come and sweep over Judah, but he definitely didn't live long enough to see Babylon judged by God. That was only 50 years. That was the amount of time from this vision being recorded until its fulfillment when Babylon falls. But 50 years at this point in history was the span of a lifetime. So if Habakkuk is writing as an adult, he never saw the end of even the initial wave of fulfillment of this promise. And so he's recording it so that the next generation of people would see its fulfillment. But isn't there a sense in which we are still waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given to Habakkuk? Friends, we are. Habakkuk didn't see it all, but we find this man very changed by the end of the book. Uh, Fellow Christians, your circumstances do not have to change in order for your faith and confidence and trust in God to grow. Your heart has to change, not your circumstances. We'll find that in the next several weeks as we work our way through the book. But in a fuller sense, the vision given to Habakkuk finds its fulfillment only in the death and resurrection and second coming of Christ. Now, if that's confusing, uh, let me give you a little category through which you can read all of the prophets in the Old Testament because they all do this. There's, There's a sense in which the prophets as they spoke, spoke about their day. They're not really predicting something way in the future. They're saying this right now is what's happening. But there's another sense in which they pointed ahead, perhaps to the next generation, and said, here's what's coming. But then even further out, they they prophesied. They said, here's what's going to be true when Jesus comes. But even beyond that, in their most full sense, they pointed to here's what will happen in the end when Jesus returns. So as you're reading these portions of your Old Testament, just think about them like you picture one of our incredible Arizona sunsets. There were several this week that were just magnificent. As you look out across the horizon, the sunset, at the same moment of time, you see these tremendous variant shades of color, right? The the same thing happens in in the horizons of the prophetic books. You see one color in its immediate sense, but as you gaze out, becomes even more incredibly beautiful. Are you with me? So there's this sense in which we are still waiting for the full sense in which Habakkuk prophesied to be true. Well, how's that so? Friends, there are still days 
in which we look longingly for justice to be fulfilled. Isn't there? There are still days in which we groan because we're waiting. And when Jesus returns, next time He comes, He's not coming as a little baby. He's coming as the ruler of the universe. And it's in that moment when all wrongs will be righted, when all justice will be fulfilled. But God will come in His time. Wicked people who reject God and trample upon people will meet the justice of God at the return of Christ. But what do we do for now? We wait. And if it's hard for us to wait at a stoplight, then how hard is it to wait for the rest of our lives? Friends, this is God's answer to our struggle to understand what He's doing. Wait. Wait. What is the all-powerful, sovereign, good God doing while His people are crying out? How long? Why? Well, He's remaining faithful to His promise. And we're to wait. Now, what happens when we wait? Well, here's at least three things, I think, that definitely occur in a Christian and in churches while we wait on God. One, and certainly here in this passage, we see that pride is broken and humility is cultivated. When, when we are told by God, this is what I'm doing, and yet as we look out, we don't see it. What happens in that interim time? Well, we are brought low, and so our pride is broken and our humility is cultivated. That's a great thing. 500 years ago, a pastor said this. He said that we all need the faith which strips us all of arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God that we may seek salvation from Him alone, which would otherwise be far removed from us. That's so good. Maybe more than anything else, what you need today is a breaking of your pride and a nurturing of humility. Friends, the Scriptures tell us that God stiff arms the proud, but His face is turned towards the humble. Don't you want that? Now, the second thing that happens while we wait is that we slowly come to recognize that the ungodly only seem to have it easy. They only seem to have it easy. Many times when we look at our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and compare them to people in our lives who don't know God, it can seem as though it would be easier to have life without God because the ungodly are doing whatever they want to do while the Christian is in some ways constrained by God's commands. Are you surprised to hear me say that? 
There's a sense in which people without God may appear for a while to have it better. But it's only for a little while. It's only that they seem to have it better. It's only for a moment in time when compared with eternity. Friends, people without God, in this text, the Babylonians, who arrogantly wipe out entire cultures, internally, even while they're sinning, they're condemning themselves. And externally, they're removing from themselves the possibility of help. Because pride is building up a wall greater and greater and higher and higher and stronger and stronger against the very Word of God. That's something we ought to fear. The ungodly for a season may prosper, but without Christ for eternity, they will reap what they sow. And finally, as we see definitely in the whole book of Habakkuk, is that as we wait on God, our trust develops, it grows, therefore our character grows. Part of verse 3 says the vision will not lie. That seems kind of strange. Why does it say that? I think it's because at times life tells us that God's a liar. At times our experience feels as though God is contradicting himself. As though God is saying, do you want life? Come to me. So we come to him, but then life seems to get more difficult. People living for themselves seem to have it easier. Experience feels as though it contradicts God's word. But then we wait. We say, how long, God? God responds in his word. He says, I love you. I'm for you. Trust me. Wait for me. And that exercises the muscles of faith. And those muscles grow. So our character is transformed. Friends, this is the way spiritual growth happens. I would love to write some other prescription to remedy our sin, our ongoing struggle of sin as Christians. But this is what the doctor ordered. This is the prescription. There's trial. You wait. You grow. God remains good. This is the Rx. This is how you grow. As we suffer and turn to Him, we discover that God is better than even life being easy. And so we grow. The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. That's what trial does. It teaches us that Jesus is better. Have you had enough of waiting? Well, let's consider the heart of God's reply. Look at verse 4 again. This is the crux, the very essence of the vision. Behold his, in the immediate sense, Babylon, but in the fuller sense, all who reject God. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright 
within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's look at both pictures. First, the ungodly will die in pride. The text says that Babylon was puffed up. One of the crazy experiences of my life came on a mission trip to Rwanda. Most people will never go to Rwanda. I was shocked to find it's an incredibly beautiful country. Most of us think of what when we think of Rwanda? We think of the genocide in which in a period of only about 40 days, over a million people were killed. But not not by weapons of mass destruction or bombs, but by machetes as neighbor turned against neighbor. That's what we think of. I was uh, blessed to go there and spend about two weeks teaching new converts who had just moved from Islam to Christianity about what it meant to live for God. And 90% of them were women. You know why? Because all the men were dead. And every single one of these women had all lost at least one child. Many of them, two, three, four, five, six kids who had been killed either by genocide or by starvation. But the few tourists who do go to Rwanda, they go to see the gorillas. You've probably heard of them. There's this small group of gorillas that only live on the border between Uganda and Rwanda. Here's a picture of one. It's kind of small. I don't know if you can see it. You definitely can't get a sense of this. But we added on one day in our trip. And you go and you pay these guides, and they say, we're going to hike up there in these mountains, and we're going to see the gorillas. Now, I'm imagining we're going to hike like a mile, and then with binoculars way off in the distance, we're going to see these gorillas. That's not what went down. We hiked, and 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 we hiked. And eventually, we literally stopped, and the guide says, wait. And pretty soon, literally surrounding us are these gorillas. And they are, they are enormous. And the silverback, the, the, the big daddy of the group, stands For some reason, it doesn't have the same effect on my little chest. (laughs) Sometimes I take my shirt off at home and do this, but Jill is just not impressed. (laughs) I cannot describe to you what this experience was like. These things are literally 10, 12 feet away, and they're surrounding this entire little group of idiotic tourists. And the silverback stands and his chest is puffed up. Why? He's saying, I'm in charge. Look at me. Don't you make the mistake of thinking you can have what you want. You can't. I'm the boss. That's what Babylon did. Babylon stood in front of the whole world and pounded its chest. 
Babylon said, we get what we want whenever we want it. Don't you dare mistake. Don't you dare think you can stand up against us. You can't. His soul was puffed up. Pride causes us to say, I've got this. In and of myself, my own resources, they're sufficient. I don't need you. I don't need God. I have myself. Every nation in history that has expanded in pride has died in pride. History tells us God is just. Individuals and nations, all people, will be dealt with by God. They will all bear the consequences. Look at verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Another one of those sentences that seems so out of place. Easy to just skip. Wine is a traitor. Friends, if you don't struggle with addictions, and if your conscience isn't bound, isn't persuaded, that you should avoid alcohol, then a little wine with a meal is nice. But beware. Wine is a traitor. One glass is good, but before long, what happens? You've had two. You've had three. And then you feel like you're still in control. But you don't even know what you're doing anymore. If you stay even longer, four, five, The wine lies. It deceives. So in arrogance, you keep on sipping while the wine says you're fine. But then at best, you wake up recognizing, I made a fool of myself. And at worst, somebody died on the way home. But here's the catch. The entire time, sipping away, you believe you're in control. The wine was a traitor. It lied. Friends, God is announcing. Babylon, you're just sipping away. You're drunk on your own pride. You're going to wake up. The consequences of your drunkenness are going to be the end of your nation. There is no Babylon today. You're not seeing them on the evening news. Why? 
They pound it away in arrogance. But it's also true literally. It's one of the things I found so shocking as I studied this text carefully. The book of Daniel was written after Habakkuk. So it records the next series of dominant world events. Let me tell you really quickly part of what happens in the book of Daniel. You can read about this in Daniel 5. Nebuchadnezzar's son is on the throne. And his name was Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, another dude naming his kid. Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar's son throws a huge feast. And the text goes out of its way to say, everybody's there, and it's a big drunken party. And in the middle of this drunken party, Belshazzar says to his leaders, go get all the stuff that we stole out of the temple in Jerusalem when we conquered it and parade it in front of the people to show our power. That very night, Belshazzar has a dream. This dream in essence, gets interpreted by Daniel and says, the nation's coming to an end. Belshazzar's killed, and Persia's rule begins in the middle of a drunken party. And it was right here, decades before it happened. May that serve as a warning to us. To put it very directly, If you're here today and you're not a Christian, Habakkuk would say you're simply drunk. If you think you can get through this life just fine without God and escape His justice in the end, the wine of your own arrogance is lying to you. You might have a good time now, but one day you will wake up with an eternal hangover. The gospel invites you, my friend, to sober up, to get punched in the face with God's grace, and then to start a whole new life with Jesus. Friends, Babylon's pride will be its ruin, and it will be ours too unless we trust in God. Now, in great contrast to the death of the proud is this much more happy image, and that's that the righteous will live by faith. Friends, Habakkuk would find life, life, not in the change of his circumstances, but in a faith that trusted in God, a faith that was stronger than any hardship, Notice verse 4 says, the righteous live. They live, both now and forever. Reminds me of John's words in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, faith is the critical element for life. 
Faith is the critical element for life. Because only people who come to realize they are ungodly will cast themselves upon God for forgiveness. And that's what righteousness is. It's, it's the gift of God making you right with Him. The righteous will live by faith. Friends, this promise is monumental. Maybe that's why that little phrase is repeated over and over and over throughout the rest of the Bible. Let me show you just one place, and I want to encourage you to turn with me there to Romans chapter 1, and we'll finish this morning in this text. Romans chapter 1, where we're going to find this exact phrase used by Paul. Hundreds of years later, as he thought about the work of the gospel, his mind went back to Habakkuk. This is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that's the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, and here it is, the righteous will live by faith. Brothers and sisters, your salvation rests not upon your own righteousness, but upon His, upon Jesus's. Why? Because all of us are by nature Babylonians. We are all people apart from God intervening, pounding our fists against our chest, saying, I've got this. My life is fine. I'm good. Or were people saying, my life is horrible. It's miserable. It's terrible. But that's just this. A different way. Right? We are all by nature Babylonians. So the only hope of righteousness is that God would give it. That God would hand it to us. Salvation rests on God's righteousness in Christ given to us. That's the gospel. God revealing His power by declaring sinners to be right with Him. Friends, Habakkuk struggled deeply wondering, is God just? This text tells us he is. How do we reconcile God's sovereignty and people's responsibility? How do we come to terms with a God who says, I'm in charge, nothing happens except what I providentially decree. And yet, I'm good, I'm holy, I'm gentle, I'm kind, I'm loving. How do we make sense of that? It's only in the gospel. Look at chapter 3, same book, Romans 3, verse 21. 
Righteousness given, justice served. Look at how this plays itself out. Verse 21, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That just means, the word propitiation means wrath taker. means Jesus took the wrath for us to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now watch this. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, forgiveness from sin comes through God's judgment on Christ Jesus. So in the very same act, God shows, I'm just and I'm the justifier. That is astonishing. That as Jesus hung like this, as God punished him in the exact same act, God proved himself to be just and God held out arms of grace and love and showed himself to be the justifier. What Habakkuk was told is the same thing we need. There is the gospel of grace. Christians, while you were doing this, Jesus did this. And maybe you've reverted back as a follower of Jesus into this again. Guess what? Jesus is still doing this. And again, to anyone here who has not yet accepted Christ, my dear friend, it may feel like a party today. but your pride is lying. Won't you come to Christ? Let's pray. God, this is one of those passages I finish and think there is no possible way to have given it all it deserves. Father, I pray especially for the person in the room who still has questions about Christ. God, I pray if he or she believes that Jesus came and died and rose again. If he or she accepts the truth that Christ died in his or her place. If they're aware that they've resisted God and lived life apart from Him, then God, would you overwhelm those questions with 
your truth, that Jesus is alive and well, that Jesus saves. God, I pray they come to you in prayer even now. And Lord, in the coming weeks, may we get to see more and more baptisms as people who get saved don't keep that to themselves, but express that through baptism. Father, I also pray for my brothers and sisters, fellow Christians. Father, whether we tend towards morbid introspection or outright arrogance, both are pride. Both are preposterous in light of the gospel. Father, as we wait for you to fulfill all that you have promised, may we as a church do so humbly, confidently. We pray, God, in a broad way for the whole body. Father, that we would be a people marked by the constant awareness that the righteousness of God has been given to us. That we live every day by faith. So may we cultivate pride, cultivate humility, God, as we resist pride. Pray this in Jesus' name.